Jesus Church College. Join hosts Richard Tamburo and Molly Inman as they chat with other faculty and guests about church, the Bible, theology, and learning the way of Jesus here in Portland. This week, we take a look at the parable of the wicked tenants. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I am here with, uh, he's becoming more regular, but is still quite irregular, Tim Reed. <laughs> yeah, happy to be here again. <laughs> and then special guest, Crooksy. Hey, good to be here. And we are going to do a parable. And we've had a series of these, and it's a really good one, really important one. Um. Even as I say that, I'm thinking like, when am I ever going to start a podcast with like, yeah, hey, so we're doing this parable, name. this one really stinks. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're all good. But I think when you've like looked at it and spent some time thinking about it, you just, you're in that zone where you're like, wow, this is so awesome. This is so cool. And so, yeah, we're doing, uh, it's titled in my Bible, The Parable of the Wicked Tenants. Or I think some, some Bibles call it the Parable of the Vineyard. Yeah, I have the Vineyard Owner. The vineyard, vineyard owner, mm-hmm. yeah, not vineyard, vineyard. <laughs> yeah, I've got the parable of the evil farmers. My Bible really dumbed it down. Okay, because there's a bit of a. This is funny, actually. It seems like every podcast we do on a parable, we're like, yeah, actually, what should we call this? Because the title is sometimes like, oh, so what's the focal point? So is it the vineyard? Is it the farmers? Is it the owner? And actually, all of them kind of miss the mark because I, I think it's probably the sun arriving yeah. on the scene yep. and so but if you call it the parable of the sun and you're like well that is quite Jesus. a few of those yeah, like, well, that's confusing. but anyway so we're we're looking at it in luke chapter 20 um and so whatever it's called you know the one we're talking about so i'm gonna uh because you might not have the whole bible memorized and so we'll just uh read it a little bit here get it fixed in our minds and then we'll dive in and pull it to pieces and so I'm not going to read this. We'll we'll chat through some of like what's going on with Jesus and the disciples leading up to this. But it gets to this point where he says, uh, Jesus began to tell the people this parable. And so Jesus says, well, there's a man who planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, and this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, when they all heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
And then I, this is just like cool to see the reaction. Scribes and Pharisees are there. They've kind of spurred this whole thing on. So we get their reaction. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour because they perceived he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Wow. So it's like high, there's, that's like there's high drama going on here. So we're going to pull this to pieces. This was Tim's here because Tim was like, this is one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to pick. You sent and me a couple. Crooks is here because Crooks is cool. But, you know, we could have had him any time. But I was asking him about this and he was like, lots of you might not know. He's studying at Western Seminary as well as doing his job and everything else. And he's written a paper on this recently. So he's like got a head full sure do. on this one I as won't well. read it all for you today, but yeah. maybe get something out of it. So, yeah, you can ask for his paper if you're extra interested. There so, you go. Should we, should we sort of set the scene? Yeah. Right? So, uh, why is there high drama? So, is that we should backtrack from the, from the ending here? Yeah. Right? Jesus has said something. The scribes and the chief priests are really upset. Um, so, why... Why are they on the scene as this parable starts to unfold? Well, yeah, Jesus has just been challenged by the Pharisees previously. So he's in the temple, he's cleared it out, and he has he's asked them a, a question that's a no-win scenario in, in, the, in the previous section of verses where he says, I'll ask you a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? And, and, and the Pharisees can't answer the question because no matter what they say, uh, they're going to actually implicate themselves. And that's the, yeah. that's the purpose of the question. And so they, they basically try to put it off and they say, well, well, we actually don't know where it came from. And Jesus says, okay, well, then I'm not going to tell you my authority. But I will tell you something else. And it says he went on to tell them this parable. Yeah. So this, this parable does not happen in a vacuum. Yeah. So they're in the midst of challenging specifically his authority. And it's kind of interesting because, like you say, he's cleared the temple. But just before then, we've got the triumphal entry. Yeah. So he's ridden as like someone who is announcing their arrival and their authority and their, you know, that people should be looking to him. So he's had that moment. They weren't best pleased with that because they were like, hey, you should get everyone shut up. Like, yeah. you, you shouldn't be doing this. And he And Jesus was like, dudes... If I got everyone stopped, the, the stones would cry out. So they're, they're already upset. And then he and his disciples go in the temple and clear it out, partly because you've got like money changers and like people using it as a place for profit. But partly people are just using it as a through fare. People are, people are just walking through the temple without respecting the sanctity of what that space is for. And Jesus is just like, no. And his disciples, they're just like, they stop. And it's interesting. I was reading one book that was like, yeah, they may have even like prevented the afternoon sacrifice happening that day. Mm. Right. So the chief priests are like, you have got in the way of the most important. And it's interesting because N.T. Wright has got a spiel about how that moment may have been Jesus trying to get people thinking about how what the season he was announcing was an end of temple sacrifice being mm. the means and the start of something else. So, that he's doing things to provoke the priests thinking about a coming change and their reaction is they feel threatened which you can get yeah totally of course <laughs> they do like if someone turned up in church and just stopped us doing it we'd be upset about that so I, yeah they're challenged and they feel threatened and so they're like hey why are you doing this 
But then it's interesting. We get this like, well, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll give you a hint. But you're going to have to wrestle with some of your insecurity about why you can't answer my question yeah. in order to really get the answer. And and then we get the parable. So there's, a, there's a lot of insecurity, a lot of threatenedness, a lot of prov- provocation. I want to hear Crooksy talk about this. I want I want to I want to <laughs> dig into this paper. Okay. Um I'm not completely buying into the anti-right end of temple change shebang. Especially I think when you read it and look and like where this passage comes in Luke's gospel, like kind of, you know, like this is winding up towards the end. And like he starts off the whole thing and like he's got all of the like Simeon and Anna and like Jesus at the temple and like Jesus quote unquote gets lost at the temple. He's got all the temple stuff whenever it starts off and he's got like loads of temple stuff when it closes up and it's not so much, I mean, anti right. I'm not going to find the quote in my paper, but he said something that was really like, oh yeah, temple's done. And I was like, for all of the things that he writes about how Jesus is the continuation of the Jewish story, it seems strange then that he would be like, yeah, temple's done. Yeah, And I was like, oh, hang on, wait a minute. And it's like, is Jesus like going against the temple and putting an end to that? It seems to me that he's going against the people who are running the yeah. temple. And like yeah. temple is going to continue. God's story is going to continue. How God relates to people is going to continue. Yes, it's going to be different because you jokers aren't going to be in charge anymore. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Mm. Because actually whether Jesus is against the temple is a question we might think about they would have probably thought about it as well like what are you standing against like why are you causing this trouble and the parable actually helps answer the question yeah uh, because the temple doesn't really figure in the parable but the leaders of the temple the priests oh big time maybe do so yeah i think big it helps time. it helps them and that's the interesting thing because they're like they're threatened concerned you know questioning jesus like what are you against here what's your problem and effectively this parable is a way for jesus to turn around and be like you you you're my yeah. problem <laughs> yeah which is like that's kind of yeah well then you can totally understand the end of what we read where they're really upset <laughs> yeah well well they know it and, that, and that's one thing too that in a, if you have a study bible you're probably going to see that that the text goes back to isaiah chapter 5 it's, it's more explicit in matthew's gospel but this is an allusion to isaiah chapter 5 where the prophet isaiah is talking about or i guess i should say isaiah since i'm in the presence of some, some bricks here yeah. there we go unless you're I always to say, say you can say isaiah as long as you say jeremiah that's what i was yeah. about to say yeah. keep it consistent i don't mind what it is as long as it's consistent yeah okay so so in, in, the, in the prophet isaiah in chapter five israel's referred to as a vineyard that had been planted and i'll, I'll read the text right here yeah read that it's really it says good. i will sing a song for the one i love a song about his vineyard my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. That's language that Matthew picks up. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Wow. Okay, so there's the parable. Isaiah continues. Isaiah continues. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it'll be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow up from there. He goes on and on and on saying that the vineyard of the Lord Almighty 
is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So when Jesus starts telling a parable about a vineyard here, there is, there's no question the oh, yeah. imagery that, that, that is being pulled into play. Everyone's clocking like you're retelling something we're familiar with. Yes. Yeah. But with a twist. Yeah. So then, now we've got to play the little spot the difference game. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, because I think in Isaiah 5, it's really clear. I, I mean, and in this, but um, like Yahweh really cares about that that vineyard. And like in Mark's account of this, it's like the man planted the vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug out a pit for wine press, built a watchtower. Like he cares about this vineyard. And then he went away for a long time. So what's up with that? I, fi- I find that, like, strange. And spot the difference. I kind of was always just like, why, why do these dudes, like, why do these farmers, like, beat up the first, like, the first servant and send him away empty-handed? And you're like, is it because, like, Isaiah 5, they, they had nothing to give him? like nothing to send back to the owner and uh i don't know spot the difference is kind of like that vineyard seems very awful and this one we're kind of left to guess a little bit about the state of um, how effective the farming has been yeah should we say there there may be some hints yes and so there's hints like the fact that when the, when they come to want to kill someone, they take the son outside the vineyard to kill him. Maybe because if they killed him in the vineyard, it would defile the crop and mm-hmm. they'd be left with no profit. So that's one suggestion that may hint at it. But but m- maybe those hints are like they're not the main point. Sure. And so we we are left wondering a bit. But maybe that's part of Jesus's design. Like people would have been used to hearing Isaiah five and knowing like, hey, God's beef is that the vineyard isn't producing fruit. Here we've got a vineyard and we're like, is there fruit? I don't know. But God's beef is like not with whether there's fruit or not. His beef is with the people who are dispersing the, the crop. Yeah. And what and their inter specifically their interact it's the owner farmer interaction that the beef is with. Hmm. And so there's something wrong in the attitudes. And there's a there's a bit of uh, ancient Near East culture here, maybe as well, because if um you know i had like a field and i rented it to tim and then like he beat someone up i that'd be so freaky so (laughs) weird but under jewish law if you were a tenant farmer and the owner did not claim any fruit from that land for three years you became the owner of it squatters rights squatters rights so there is like a little bit to like the undercurrent of their actions is, uh, you know, they they want to claim ownership of the vineyard. Mm. Like that's the end goal. That's what that's what their actions are aiming at. Yeah. I mean, this is we can go a lot of different directions, but you you think about like, so he the owner sends these people to get an accounting of what's rightfully the owner's right. It's his vineyard, and and part of owning a vineyard is that you get a a, a portion of the the fruits of it, and. So he, so he sends somebody and they get they get beaten and, and sent away and then someone else gets wounded. What's the owner say? Oh, I'll send my son, whom I love, 
yeah. they'll, they'll respect him. Like, so, so like there's, there's something going on here. That's really interesting. Like, is it, is there, is there any indication that like they would respect anybody that's come yet? Well, there seems to be some, like if they come in the authority of the father, that, that they might respect it. And what did Jesus just get asked about earlier? Whose authority does he have? Like this son that's being sent is, is carrying the authority of the father, but instead of seeing that and respecting it, they say, you know what, here's our opportunity. This can be, this can be ours if we kill him. Yeah. And, and it's the fact that he cut, like there's a demand being made and there's a rejection of that demand. And Jesus says, come enter Jerusalem triumphantly gone into the temple and shaken thing like dem- almost like demands have been made so there's that sort of dynamic that paralleled but yeah there's this progression as well like one cent two cent three cent and like there's an escalation of violence against the ones who are sent yeah um and the, there's a structure to this parable which is this sort of ring structure so it's a sort of Hebrew poetic device, literary device to um, to lay out stories to help us understand what the focal point is supposed to be. And we're quite used to stories where that build the tension and then the end of the story, there's a, the climactic scene and we're like, oh, that's the important bit. So we might be used to reading this parable as a story and get to the end and it's something like, oh, it's to do with a stone at the end or the fact that, um, like, what will the owner do? Like, that, those questions are the climax. But actually, it's the sun arriving on the scene, which is um, at the centre of the ring. And so that our, if, if we read with an ancient mindset, as the listeners would have heard this, we're being drawn into, like, okay, so what's so pivotal about the sun being sent? And like you say, so we've got this progression of violence, and then we're like, okay, so what should our expectation as the owner be? Like, what what have we learned about these tenants? It's like, ah, well, whoever I send next is probably going to get it worse than the last. So <laughs> my expectation is like, whatever I do next is going to cause me more pain. Like, at least that's part of the story that's being told. So then that you would send... And this is just like my uh, my translation has got it as beloved son, but really the only son would be a maybe better translation. Yeah, it's even pick it up on Genesis twenty two language of send your only son or the son that you love is the exact same yeah. language that that is said to Abraham. Yeah, and so this is there's a sense of like the climax of the owner can't go any further in his sending, but also it's like if they reject this, there's, there's no one else to send. So it's sort of, uh, it's, what's the phrase? Like last gasp saloon kind of thing for them. Um, or last opportunity for a response. Yeah. But then I, then I think about like, what, what do I expect in the story? And, and a little twist of like ancient Near East, right? If I was an owner and my servants got treated this way, I'm like calling the police or getting some buddies together and we're going to form a militia and we're going to go down there and take the vineyard back by force. Like I'm going to retaliate and I'm going to get justice through violence. Like I'm, I'm going to go give them a measure of what they've given out. Like they'll get a taste of their own medicine and I'm going to put things right. And the interesting thing is the owner wants to put things right. Yeah. Cause he, 
there's that sort of phrase of like maybe they'll respect yeah or maybe maybe they'll feel shame when the sun comes like it's almost like i don't know for me not being jesus and having a different heart i would just view these people really cynically as like do you know what these people are jerks they just need a slap in the face like we just need to take them down but the owner sees in them the pot even though they've done horrific stuff to his servants so they've really disgraced this owner they've brought they've dishonored the owner even though they've acted so horrifically it's like the owner still sees the possibility of reconciliation like maybe there's some like tiny spark of honor left in these people and if i send my son maybe that'll turn into a flame and they'll act differently so it's uh, that's what's so surprising to a listener of the son being sent is like why would you risk sending your son but it's so easy for us and and it's you know it's in the bible as well loads of people do react by being like yeah we need retributive justice here we need to like punish people but brought into the focal point is another way of seeking reconciliation which is instead of going slapping people who've done wrong you make yourself vulnerable to them in order to try to elicit um, a, a different response from them and so this really would have tweaked the listeners minds mm. of like is that a way like is that a way this can be put right like is this going to work like every the way it's escalated every expectation is against it so you're like man i like maybe after the first time this would have worked or maybe if you tried it first out this would be wise like it might have worked but this is like everything seems stacked against this vulnerable self-giving way of making reconciliation on the table again it's like it just seems doomed to failure and yet the owner still does it yeah and i think that repeated opportunity for a response through the parable it's just like there's again like the kind of ripple of it like all of these actions that jesus does like since he comes in the triumphal entry he shows his love for jerusalem then he he lets he lets the dudes who are not treating the temple right have it and he's like giving off serious jeremiah vibes there then he brings up john the baptist so and isaiah like you were saying tim so like from the very start the prophets weren't listened to right up until their contemporary prophets weren't listened to you had all these opportunities to respond like even in these last few events in these days you had opportunities to respond and you didn't you are these guys like chance after chance after chance to make the right choice and the right response and yet you don't and i think that uh matthew and mark both are like i'll send the son and they will respect him and it seems yeah. very definitive and then in luke it's that like yeah perhaps they'll respect him hmm. and in a sense there's like a vulnerability in that and a sense of like sometimes like i feel like it could portray the owner as weak and we don't like that like the idea of like god the father being weak but then if it's like you're saying like god the father allowing himself to be and putting himself in a position to be weak even if that's like i'm not going to force you to respond in a certain way this is up to you you have the control in this moment how are you going to respond to it like perhaps they'll respect him 
perhaps they won't. Like that says a lot about how God treats people who haven't proven themselves to be good responders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because like a lot of the parables, there's like a theme in the parables of like how the kingdom is different than you'd expect it. Like the way of the kingdom is different than what you're used to. So, uh, you know, when you are wronged, you want reconciliation, but risking more loss to do it. You know, that kind of self-giving love that the father has is, is different. And it's that sort of, the way of the world is often like, we'll fight fire with fire, like violence yeah. begets violence. And then this owner steps in and like, but it's it's interesting, right? Because we know more of the story of like what happens to the son and the resurrection and the rest of the storyline. But um, actually this looks like the owner fails. Um, and that's another tension we're left with. Yeah. in this story is like yeah the it, it doesn't look like it works like reconciliation doesn't happen so it is i i don't know we like we want god to risk great loss to achieve reconciliation we want it to work but part of the interesting thing as i read this parable is i'm left with a bitter taste in the mouth of feeling like man what a tragedy mm. like god risked so much and lost so much so god suffers and we still don't get the happy ending, you know. And so, but it, but it's then knowing the rest of the story is, is interesting to me because I know that there's loads of other people I can keep reading through Acts and, you know, and seeing like Joseph of Arimathea and people who are involved in this priestly cast who do turn to Jesus, who do reconcile, but left with still the tragedy of like, yeah, there's some people who like they say no. And they're still violent and like a part of the like the end of the story here is and, and actually what's in the foreground as Jesus is particularly addressing these priests yeah. who feel threatened, feel like their authority is threatened, like maybe the propensity for that group is, man, you are heading down the road of rejection and here's what that's gonna look like, that you will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of dark, like, yeah, depressing. Oh, it is. I mean, and it, and it parallels, like, again, this isn't written in a vacuum, just rewinding back, not even, well, barely a full chapter to Jesus riding into the city on the donkey, right? So Jesus does this big thing riding into the city. Like, this is a unique act. It's a big deal. And he immediately clashes with the religious leaders who want him to shut the whole thing down. Then he goes into the temple. Well, and, and actually, I'll back up real quick. So, and then he and then he weeps over them because of the destruction yeah. that's going to be coming. I mean, he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because he says the destruction is going to be coming, and and it's because you didn't recognize the time that God was coming to you. So, okay, so we have we have a big act that happens. We have a clash with the religious leaders, and then we have Jesus saying there's going to be destruction because you haven't recognized what God's doing. Now we get into chapter 20. We see Jesus clearing the temple. This is a big act. We see a clash with the religious leaders. And at the end of it, there's judgment. And, and, and so this is a parallel to what's, what's been happening earlier. It's an indictment on the religious leaders at the time. And God is so gracious that the tenant is so, or the, the, um, the father is so gracious sending multiple people. But at the end, when there's no one left to send, there is going to be justice. Yeah. And that's that sort of, 
um, climactic scene because he's drawing from uh, when he talks about the stone. Like, everyone, all these Jews would have known, like, stone. Oh, you mean King David? Like, mm. you mean... Yeah. You mean the one who accomplishes God's kingdom, like, and and they're thinking like, yeah. So you're talking this is messianic stuff, and when he starts talking about the stone, actually the the bits of Psalm 118 that that are, that are either side of this quote give context to the triumphal entry. So Psalm 118's got this kind of like, open the gates of righteousness that my that I may enter in and give thanks and. Um, you know, it it's this scene of things getting accomplished. But in the midst of it, we have this like, yeah, the stone this builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And that was David's life. Yeah. Like King David, God's chosen him, God's prepared him. And like Saul and like, yeah, all these people are looking around and they're like, well, not him. He's like this like weird looking kid. Like surely there's someone else. So they... They reject, but God's like, no, that's who I've chosen and and will build my kingdom around. So that was and so the messianic hope is that that, that pattern will occur again. And I don't know, it's it's sort of in the midst of tragedy, it's like really sadly ironic that you've got these leaders who they know this pattern. They know that what God's going to do with the Messiah will bring something unexpected. And here they are encountering the unexpected. And Jesus then, like, he just lays the challenge in front of them in such a frank way. Like, dudes, I'm saying I'm the stone. Like, are you going to be like the people who wanted to kill King David? Or are you going to be like the people who followed him? And the extra piece, like, talk (laughs) about the unexpected where... Like, they know the setup for, like, all the messianic stuff and, like, God planted a vineyard and then, like, evil people um, are, are in control of it, but Messiah's going to kick them out, right? So they're just, like, sucker punched when they find out that it's them that's the yeah. problem, not the Romans. Yeah. And you're like, oh, wait. So, like, they're super used to, like, all the messianic chat and then it's like, oh, no, wait, the Romans, but us, but wait, he's against, ah. Uh, and then, like, they react so strongly and they know exactly who Jesus is talking about. Like, what comes as unexpected isn't misunderstood by them. And I think that, like, kind of tragic, like, it's the hope that kills you sometimes, isn't it? Where you're waiting for Messiah to come and, like, punt the Romans. And then it turns out he's coming and it looks like what he's saying is that he's coming to punt you. Yeah. And then you're you're not happy with that, but... It's just like all so nuts that when you look at things, like when you look at the Bible through like your own cultural perspective, like I am a Gentile. So how I might interpret this parable as like those Jewish religious leaders aren't going to be in charge anymore, but instead like what Jesus, like messianic work is going to bring like the church and the apostolic age, and then that's going to be the thing now. So Gentiles, hey, good news. But what does that mean for, not that that's a particularly wonderfully fully accurate way to interpret this parable, but anyway, um, it's still like, how do you take that if you're a Jewish person? And like, how do you read then into Acts? And it just isn't the story, like it might be for me to be like, yes, this is incredible. Now, like covenants apply to me, like, blessing comes to me incredible 
and it just reads like the story of what coulda and shoulda been and then like it is a tragedy depending on what direction you're looking at it yeah it's interesting like talk like thinking about them and rome as well because you know you've got this like uh this dynasty this family dynasty annas and his five sons and his son-in-law caiaphas and there's this family dynasty that's got the reins of priestly power and yet the way that they are getting that power is by trying to manipulate their relationship with the Romans. So they have this kind of love-hate relationship with the Romans because they have power because of the way they relate to them. And they think they're manipulating them and the Romans probably think they're, you know, there's all this mistrust, dysfunction stuff going on. And, yeah, and they have a hope for like God's kingdom to come for victory um, but they see themselves as being part of the solution and they see their way of doing things as being part of the solution and so they're at, they're anticipating not relinquishing the power they've got for things to move forward yeah which makes they it- think it's going to be about them uh-huh. and it makes it extra juicy then that looks next thing is the whole like should we pay taxes to Caesar or not, Jesus? What do you yeah. think? Like, God, yeah. God, who is it for you, Jesus? Is it God or is it Caesar? Whenever, like, do you know when you have those things where, like, you're giving away your heart by what you say out loud, yeah. and you're like, you guys, shut, like, just shut up, like, you need to stop giving the game away, and just love that question where they come to him and be like, what are you gonna do? But they're the dudes in the parable, and the owner is coming to collect what is rightfully his and they're like i will not give you what is rightfully yours and then they come to the question about taxes and what is but should we give anything to caesar should we give anything to caesar and be like <laughs> yeah. well what about like give to caesar what is caesar's and give to god what is god's takes new meaning when the whole oh, parable man. was just like you aren't even giving to god what's god so what are you worrying so about good. caesar for yet? yeah Ugh. like luke is a very good editor it is so challenging <laughs> yeah and especially in this season, right? Here we are, running up to November. People, there's a lot of people following Jesus who think that the way that, like, Christian, or what they think are Christian policies or practices or hope for their churches and hope for their nation is going to be accomplished because, you know, I just see such a parallel between the heart Oh, yeah. mindset of these priests and people who are like yeah i want to be in bed with a certain political allegiance yep. and you know a- and here we've got a situation where jesus is like yeah the way i'm going to bring my kingdom it's just it's not to do with any of that it's going to be completely out of that box like the power games that you c- that are if you want to play power games, here are your options, A, B, and C. And Jesus is like, yeah, like I've got secret option D. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a stone that you're likely to reject if you think playing the power games is the way forward. Yeah, And it's another one of those, like the way of the kingdom here, the the contrast is, is with the way that the priests think influence is going to get brought. And it, it's, mod- I mean, they're the foil then for what the owner of the vineyard does where his way he's not manipulative he's not coercive he gives himself like he risks he it's just so we're like 
we and then we look at our world and we're like, oh, how do we move forward that way? How do we do that? And it's actually so rare. We're like, I don't really understand how to translate that into my context. Like it's kind of, it becomes hard for us. It just shows how far we are from the heart of this, the, well, the father, the vineyard owner. Yeah. That we maybe struggle to come up with contemporary examples of what, what does it look like to behave this way towards others, which is what I wanted to get to because it is hard, but I think we can, we can have a crack at it, right? Like this is a really interesting parable to see the dynamics of Jesus and his disciples and his world play out and just the drama of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit's recorded this in our Bible because there's something about what's playing out here that like, it's still got something to say to us. And we haven't got a temple and we haven't got pre. So we're like, <laughs> oh, but you think we've about got it. some work across in the bridge here. Yeah, but it's not that much of a, of a stretch because you think like, what's the whole story of the Hebrew scriptures? It's that a people were given a blessing by God to be a blessing to the rest of the nations, right? And that's like the embodiment of what the, the, the religious leaders were supposed to be doing in Jerusalem, but they had taken God's blessing and they had hoarded it. They had not given it to the people. I mean, Jesus says in, in other parts of the Gospels, he says that, you know, woe to you Pharisees because you go make one convert and you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. Like, that's a scathing indictment for what they have been doing. And, and so the question I think that we have to ask is like, have, are we people who have been given blessing for the sake of pouring it out on the rest of the world? Yeah. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And, and, and the mistake that we make in, in, you know, many like evangelical Western Christian spaces is that we think, well, um, I don't actually need to do anything cause I'm saved by grace. And it's like, yes, you are saved by grace, but you're saved for a purpose. And, yeah. and, 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 and you can't disconnect the fact that to be in the kingdom of God means that you're in the kingdom of God, yeah. which means that in the kingdom of God, things are done a certain way. And we have to be faithful to that calling. And I think there's two ways of going wrong, because sometimes people are like, I'm in the kingdom, which means I'm going to heaven, which means between now and heaven doesn't really matter, because now I'm safe. Yeah. Like, no matter where I run, what base I run towards, at the end of the day, I'm going to be declared safe. Uh, and so it's like, no, where, like, where, where you run, what, what happens next matters. But the other part of it is you might think, yeah, like it really does matter. Like I'm not just in a holding pattern waiting for heaven. Yeah. Like the here and now matters. But then that blessed to be a blessing. Like, okay, so I am stewarding the vineyard in some way. Like my family, my home, my friends, my workplace, my yep. church, my whatever spheres you want to think about. There's a cultural mandate that says the way that you succeed is to hoard. And the message of this parable is like success came through giving yeah, and giving in a way that was risky and it, it didn't just risk loss, but it risked hurt and things. So it's, um, yeah, it takes our, maybe our imagination of like creatively thinking like how, like what could it look like? And it blows it wide open to other possibilities. I'm very much aware that our cult, like, our culture would never do what the father does, <laughs> right? So we've got so much cultural momentum that says like, yeah, the way to get power is have more. The way to be secure is to have more. It's all about like getting more, having more, keeping more. And actually the the route to the the right relationship, the reconciliation and the fruitfulness here is by giving away. And so it is, 
and, and we know we know this in Christian circles. Like it's good to give. God loves a cheerful giver. Like all we talk about generosity so much, um, but it really it just keeps cropping up time and time and time again. It's good for us to think like, yeah, what's my attitude? Like um, I don't know. You it, you read these parables, and you're like, wow, Jesus is really cool. Yes, amen. Really good thing to take away from the parable. But then it's really easy to to read it. Be like, I I wouldn't be jerks like these priests <laughs> but actually we kind of need to overlay it over our life and actually ask god like am i am i doing this ever like are there ways where i'm missing like doing it the wrong way yeah i mean blessing means responsibility there's no way around it yeah it, i think uh another part of it is um the duty of these priests to be giving to the father the like there's a relationship that they were supposed to have which was where you'd maybe expect them to gladly be giving to god and i can't help but think about worship and things like this here um and that actually giving uh it it postures us like it it helps us take the stuff that is in our hands to do something with and it declares over it, not yours. Like you have a responsibility what to do with it, but it's not yours. Like it belongs to the owner. And so I I mean, I love the idea of just helping run my time, my resources, my money, my relationships through the lens of like, I'm a steward because when when I sit in that place, I'm less prone to hoard. And when I give, I'm more prone to do it in the right way. Not begrudgingly or, you know, like, well, God, I'll give, but you'll prize it out of my cold, dead hands or something. You know? And so I think we, like, they don't example it. So it's more like the anti-type of how they act in this parable. But there there is an expectation of how they could have acted. That's actually a picture of something really healthy that I think you know, I can really translate that into my context. Yeah, for sure. And um, I think that we tend to think of Jesus like cleansing the temple as being like one singular, like aggressive act. But like in yeah, this, like a flash mob. Once yeah, just happened. like boom, like he lost his temper. Yeah. Or it seems like from some accounts he had enough control over his own thoughts to think this isn't right. I'm going to go away and make a whip and then come back. So it's not like he just lost his temper and yeah. freaked out. But Very strategic. Jesus cleansing the temple in our minds fails to take into account that like pretty much from when he comes into Jerusalem, like he has temple on his mind and like the amount of like stone references all over the place, like he's temple on the brain when he comes in and he doesn't just like do this one thing where he cleanses the temple. It's like he reclaims the temple yeah. instead of cleansing the temple. He reclaims it and he does it mostly through teaching. And he does, like, all the stuff, and then this parable sits in, like, I guess, like, what you were saying, Richard, where the way that we tell stories is, like, a complete build-up of tension, and then one big climactic moment that kind of releases that tension into a a lovely, happy ending. Whereas this, like, kind of, like, builds up. There's this, um, like, the climax of the story comes in the middle where it's this, like, gas-on-the-fire moment, and then everything goes out of it. And the whole, like, reclaiming of the temple ends with, like, the end of uh, chapter 20, where, 
like there is a scene like Pharisees are being like, what about taxes and uh, Sadducees are being like, well, what about the resurrection? Which you kind of like, where did that come from? Except in the parable, the son got killed. So really juicy. Then like all the people who are standing around being like, this is going on today at the temple. And he's like, don't be like these. Ones. And like says it's like they want honor. They want fancy robes. Like they want to hoard. They want to flash for themselves in the start of chapter 21. Like there's your good example of like he sees the widow giving her yeah. gift and whether that's like you like i don't know if that's like a mandate to say you need to give every single thing that you absolutely have but it's just like that willingness to say this is yours so when you move me to take claim over what is rightfully yours i definitely will not stand in the way and that's how he kind of ends his teaching with like I mean, classic Jesus moves of like an outcast person who is way closer to Yahweh than the people who think they've got it all figured out are, which is just like so fun. And I love that, especially in Luke, because he he pulls the like poor minority figures in the foreground because it is like there's a huge give that's like a dramatic, wow, like huge thing. But then we've got all these little stories where Jesus is elevating like the widow who gives two mites or the prostitute who washes his feet with her tears. And there's also like an accessibility to what it looks like to participate by giving. So it's it's like really challenging, but also really accessible to like start. Yeah. I think there's something in the stone as well, I think yeah. really speaks to the here and now. Like, it's really easy to, well, I think especially because we tend to be, we tend to think we're right. So it's really easy to look at the world and be like, oh, so much wrong with the world, so much wrong with the church, so much wrong with our church. But then you like get over yourself and like, oh, there's also so much wrong with me and my marriage and my family and oh, I wish I parented better and uh, like, and just be overwhelmed by all the crud. But like the stone, like the thing Jesus establishes is it indomitable yeah it cannot be eroded yeah yeah and so you can view this as like man i hope the store doesn't i hope the stone doesn't crush me like yeah but if you're not being proud but you're just kind of like bummed and maybe feeling a bit cynical or a bit like your hopes worn thin it's just really good that jesus points at like hey i'm gonna win like my way is going to be vindicated and that's sure like that's destiny and you can bank on it and i'm like yeah, okay, that's really good for me to hear. Like, don't be cynical. There is hope. Like, find the stone. The stone's going to work. Yep. And and just latch onto that. Yeah, and, and it will break your life to fall onto the stone. He straight up says that. But the alternative is that if you try to push against it, you're going to be crushed. And I think that that, that, is, the, that is the Christian life, is, is, you know, anyone that would love their life would forsake it and lose it. And anyone that would want to have their life is, is going to lose it. Yeah. Man, it's amazing. There's so many sayings of Jesus and other parables of Jesus that are coming into this parable. But it is like like the way Luke writes, all these themes are coming to a climax in Jerusalem. So it's no surprise. All right. I think that's enough for today. I didn't even get to talk about how this typifies salvation history. Yes. But is that is that like bonus content? Yeah, no, go. Give us the bonus. Okay. Go I'm on. just like... Bonus track. I feel bad for the Pharisees. Because 
when you look at the Bible and you have to think, who am I going to relate to in this story? Like, as a Christian oh, leader, yeah. it's my responsibility in this moment to think, I need to relate to those wicked tenants. And the whole point is, you need to learn from them to not do that. And I mean, he goes, like, Jesus teaches on to, like, tell the people who are watching, being like, don't be like them. So I kind of feel bad for them, but it looks like from the parable that, like, those guys are all getting punted. And, like, the temple, like, establishment is out. But then we see in Acts that there are a lot of people from, like, the Pharisees who do join in. And I'm just like, I mean, we've kind of touched on things already. And I, I love the unified narrative in the Bible where, like, you're definitely getting, like, loads of Abraham vibes. Like, the only son and, like, the blessing that kind of is going to come through that and then like yeah for sure like all the Isaiah and the the Jeremiah pieces but it's just like fun where like uh, Psalm 118 jumps back to um, Exodus 14 where like they get through the sea and it's like there will be someone who rescues you do you know and like the roots of like that kind of like messianic thing like going back from there. So you're tracking like Genesis, Exodus through to like kings and prophets. And then you get to a place where it's looking like, okay, right. Abraham is like this. This is rambly, but I'm going to tie it up. Promise. So Abraham is one dude and he is going to, um, I'm just going to get my notes up so that I get this right because this is really fun and it would be, good to get it right okay so abraham is one dude but when you look at exodus 15 it's victory and vindication for the whole community of god and it's judgment on that whole community's enemy and then that kind of gets boiled down in psalm uh, 118 to victory and vindication for god's one chosen person and then the judgment on that individual's enemy so it looks like god is narrowing in then in Luke 20, what we're talking about today, there's victory and vindication because Jesus goes on to talk about like resurrection, how it's for real. So that son's going to be um, vindicated. And it, the victory and vindication comes through the death, but those individuals' enemies get judged. But then because of that death of that individual, there can be victory and vindication for the whole community of God. And that community of God is like getting bigger and bigger so you can trace like all of that like abrahamic uh messianic like exodus like all of that like great glorious like redemption salvation stuff that is in the meta narrative all like flowing through this parable to show how god operates in moving for his people to bring us victory and vindication from our enemies so i i really like this parable it's like a really good, juicy, crazy story to tell to kids. Sometimes I think, like, I tell these stories to kids about killing. <laughs> but, like, when you start to, like, get some dirt on your nails and, like, dig into it and you're just like, well, God is so good all day, every day. This is so fun. Yeah. So, yeah, that can be. Do you want to put that after the closing credits? No, that's okay. <laughs> okay. The bonus track is necessary. <laughs> okay. Everyone gets the bonus. Sweet. But it is. this is a rich parable. So oh, maybe yeah. I, the last bit of advice I was going to say was like, we've tried to get you thinking 
uh, get the juices flowing. Um, and maybe God's like revealed something you've got to go think about. But I'd encourage you like open your Bible, go sit with this and just like read it slowly. And um, there's just so many facets to this. Like actually take some time to see if there's something specific God wants to land on with you and like, hey, tap you on the shoulder and be like, we need to talk about this bit. So because it's it's so rich. Yeah, so I hope you enjoyed it and that, yeah, it's a parable that's going to come alive to you a bit more now we've dived into it. So enjoy, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the House of Learning podcast. This podcast is produced by Jesus Church College, based at Westside Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. AJC College trains and mobilizes the next generation of kingdom leaders through an accredited four-year degree in biblical studies with an emphasis on leadership and formation. We combine classroom learning with mentoring and ministry apprenticeship for a third of the cost of traditional college. To find out more, go to ajccollege.org or follow us on Instagram to find out if this is where God could be calling you to explore your calling. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share it with someone. And if you have a question you'd like us to chat about, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at ajccollege.org. If you can, send us a 20-second audio recording saying who you are and where you're from, along with your question, and we'd love to include it in a future episode.